Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Golden Grenades, a weekly podcast about birds and those who worship them, all set within the idyllic tableau of the end of the world. Each week, a special guest chooses the five bird species that mean the most to them, the five they will choose to survive the impending environmental apocalypse alongside them. So far, we've had David Lindo dreaming of finding supposedly extinct birds, Jill Lewis picking a bird for each decade of her life, Amy Jane Beer telling me about all the delightful dead things in her freezer, and Lev Perikian describing his love of birds with quite frankly creepy and disturbing backstories that would make Darth Vader seem like Peppa Pig. At the end of each show, the guest must pick one of their five birds to enter the avian Armageddon arena and take their chances against my favourite, the fastest animal on the planet, the deadly peregrine falcon. But so far, my peregrine has been taking a bit of a battering and somehow, despite obviously being the best bird in the world, finds itself 4-0 down. But Muhammad Ali lost five of his 61 fights, so I'm not too worried. Yet. This week... My special guest is Nick Atchison, a naturalist and conservationist now living back where he grew up in North Norfolk. For 10 years, he lived in South America, working with conservation NGOs such as WWF and Wetlands International. He has also spent three years in Asia and has worked with wildlife on every continent. A conservationist by passion and commitment, since his return to the UK, he has worked for the Wildlife Trusts and the Hawk and Owl Trust, and is currently the Wildlife Ambassador for Norfolk Wildlife Trust. Hello, Nick, and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hello, Kit. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. When we were planning this episode, you happened to tell me that I only bird by bike these days. I have legs like 1970s pipe cleaners and my bike is 41 years old, so I don't get far or see much. Now, looking at the birds on your list, you strike me as a man who very much does get far and see much. So is this lockdown based? There's one lie going on there, which is that I don't see much because I'm very privileged that I live in North Norfolk. So I cycle out and I see all sorts of wonderful things. But yes, we're going to talk about some some really wonderful birds from around the world. And it's been my privilege to work all over the world, to live in various bits of the world. And I have travelled a huge amount, but I have made the decision for ethical, environmental reasons that I don't want to fly anymore. And so now I travel around as much as I can on my bike. And I only go birding on my bike and I won't be travelling abroad as long as flying and massive carbon release is involved. And so that's the decision. So now I do only bird on my bike. You know, that must be for somebody who's travelled so extensively and lived abroad and clearly enjoys travelling and wildlife in other countries. That must have been a really difficult decision. The decision itself, not difficult at all. Rearranging my life around the decision but has been more complex, but it's, I've been supported by people I work with who've been extremely helpful and understanding. And I feel it's absolutely the right thing to have done. And so I feel good about it. And therefore I'm not looking back and going, oh, I don't get to go to Antarctica anymore. I'm never going to go and see spoonbill sandpipers on their nest again. I don't feel like that because I've had enormous privileges and the ethical thing for me to do was to decide not to travel anymore. So voila, I don't travel anymore. Apart from on your bike. Absolutely. Clearly we're going to be clocking some miles, I think, especially during the past 12 months. Uh, yeah, late, uh, since the beginning of September, it's just over 400 miles that I've cycled. 
chasing around North Norfolk. So it is a lie that I don't see birds because during, I, I, don't, I never twitch. I don't go after other people's birds, but um, lately I've seen yellow browds and palaces warbler nice. and wonderful winter waterfowl and uh, wading birds and all, all sorts of fantastic things that, that we're just privileged to have in my, my home county. You've chosen a, a good spot to be for birds. I engineered a couple of family holidays to Norfolk in the past in the, in the hopes of seeing all of the, the goodies down your way. I only heard a golden oriole, you know, at RSPB Lake and Heath when they were clinging on there by the skin of their perfect beaks. Didn't see one, though, much to my distress, but hearing one was good enough, I think. And I saw stone curlews, which, you know, you don't get up here in Northumberland, so they're mad, aren't they? Crazy eyes. They look like, I don't know, they look like they're on a bender or they're about to they're howl at the moon. They, they breed just three miles from where I live. So if I walk out on a warm summer evening, I, I have to go quite far, but um, I can I can hear them wailing and even they're, they're amazing creatures. Yeah, they're, they're incredible birds and just look like they're about to chin you. <laughs> have you seen any, any of the other stone curlews? There are various species around the world, all of which, they, they get wackier and wackier. There are a couple in Southeast Asia and, and down to Australia that have got these amazing, great big upturned bills and black and white face patterns, big stereo eyes, incredible birds. I haven't, but I have seen some pictures and they are spectacularly crazy dudes out there related to the stone curl you. Now, we're here to talk about five birds that, you know, you've chosen as the, as the five that you would save and put on the ark with you if there was to be an environmental apocalypse. And you've chosen some deep cuts, if I'm honest. But the first one is a bird close to your home and your heart. Bird number one, one. It is indeed. My first bird is the dark-bellied Brent goose, which really is the, the bird I grew up with. I grew up in North Norfolk. My granddad was at the village doctor in Blakeney, which obviously is right up there on the coast. My dad grew up in Blakeney. I went to school in Holt and we would tumble down the hill from Holt to Cly every weekend from school and watch birds. And through autumn, winter and into spring, Cly is just always the sound of Cly is dark-bellied brent geese and these these amazing birds they they come to us from Siberia they they migrate in their families they hang around together in their families all through the winter they're fascinating to watch as they interact and then they go back up to the arctic and they leave us and they roam around with polar bears and hang with arctic foxes and gerfalcons and then they come back to us and they bring another generation of strikerback babies and they're just they're just magical and the sound, the sound. That's the, the sound of our salt marshes in the coast at this time of year. They're a, they're a stunning little goose as well, aren't they? I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sucker for barnacle geese and brent geese. They're, they're, they're beautiful birds. They really are, and they represent the wild. They really do. And, and they're so much fun to sift through in the last... Well, within the last two, three weeks on my bike, I've seen a black brant among the brants and I've seen three pale bellies among the brants and also a hybrid between a black brant and a dark belly. And it's just that it's that it's that concentration. It's that state of losing yourself in the geese and being being in their world for a while and looking at them and seeing what they're up to. And, and then you do put aside the rest of life and you're, you're just focused down the barrel of your scope into the lives of the geese. And it's, it's just magic. 
Yeah, there's something about seeing birds in big numbers, especially sort of migratory birds like that, where you you can imagine where they've been. But there's something about them that I, I find a little bit comical. And I think that goes back to Dr. Zeus. And it's, do you know the Sneetches? Oh, no, I don't. There's a book called The Sneetches by Dr. Zeus, and it's about the star-bellied Sneetches and then the plain-bellied Sneetches. And obviously the star-bellied have got this superiority complex, but it, it, it's basically now the star-bellied Sneetches has bellies with stars and the plain-bellied Sneetches have none upon those. And I just get, you know, whenever I hear, you know, dark-bellied or pale-bellied rent geese, I always think of the Sneetches and, and whether the dark bellies strut around thinking that, we are the best kind of goose on the beaches, you know, like the Sneetches. But I don't know, it, it, they're not particularly a comical bird, but it's just that I just have that, I've always had that association with them and, and about their it, bellies. It's funny <laughs> you say that because actually the colours of the bellies, I think they have different personalities. So um, I was at Clyde a few days ago and there were pale bellies, two pale bellies in the flock. And I bumped into Mark Golly, who's a great friend, and he was saying how he thinks they always look meek. They look gentle beside the dark bellies. And when you see a black brand, a black brand always looks confident they have a sort of panache about them they've got this air of i'm somebody so i think they're probably a star-bellied sneech so maybe that theory is not so crazy after all not not in the slightest i'm with you good thank you and the other thing i was you know i just read about when i was trying to get some interesting facts about brent geese was that i think a lot of people particularly birders will know the story about barnacle geese and the old myth from the 12th century that barnacle geese you know where do they go in the uh, in the summertime they turn into barnacles you know and that was believed for centuries wasn't it until it was it was proven to be a myth but i didn't actually realize that it also applied to the brent geese is it, that... it applied to all birds. If you read Gilbert White's The Natural History of Selborne, he oh, was having yeah. debates about where swallows go for the wintertime. So nobody had any idea where, where these birds went. And in the absence of explanations, you had to invent mythologies around it. And so, so it's only incredibly recently that we've known, we've known where these birds go to. And there's an amazing, I, I had pink feet fly over my house just this evening as it got dark going home to the coast. And uh, it was only in, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s that we even knew where they went to breed. And it was only in 1951 that Peter Scott went to Iceland and found the breeding colonies of the pink feet and ringed the first birds in Iceland that the project continues to this day. And we, it's in the most recent shiver of time that we know anything about these things at all and so in the absence of that we've had to make up sneeches to explain them <laughs> yeah and that's that's crazy isn't it to think that people have believed for longer that these birds turned into barnacles than they've actually known the truth that, that that's quite yes. amazing and in fact and it's only relatively recently i was reading as well that in county kerry catholics could still eat these birds on a friday because they counted as fish I think it extended to geese in general. It was one of those really convenient things from what I've read a long yeah. time ago. I think it extended to geese in general because barnacle geese became barnacles and barnacles were a seafood. Ergo, geese are fish. Goose and chips. Okay, well, moving on from geese, let's talk about your second bird. Bird number two. Two. My second bird is very, very different and lives in a very, very different place. In fact, it lives as far from the sea as you can pretty much get anywhere in the world. It's called the Black and Tawny Seed Eater. Now, when I finished doing my undergrad and then my master's degree, I, I fled really to South America. Um, it was initially intended to be a three month stint 
volunteering on a ringing project uh, on the southern edge of Amazonia. And I was asked by the wonderful people who were running the project whether I would then go further north to the extreme northeast border of Bolivia with Brazil to a park called Parque Nacional Noel Mercado, which is just it's the navel of South America. It's where the Amazon meets the Brazilian shield. So the, the ancient um, Precambrian rocks of the east that most of Brazil is occupied by. And then the charcoal coming up from the south, the dry forests of Chiquitania. And it's not that much further east than the easternmost point of the Andes. And so you've got this incredible mix of species all coming together in this amazing place. And one of the flooded savannas in the north of the park, which is called Flor de Oro, is just about the only place in the world where we know there's a real colony of this gorgeous little bird, the black and tawny seed eater. And I was sent to, to wade through a swamp for several months <laughs> after this bird. And in the process, of course, saw huge amounts of other things, but it was that bird that took me there and the friendship with the people I was working with. It was it was the bird that began my 10-year life in South America. Wow, you lived there for 10 years. I did, indeed, yes. I felt, I felt proper foreign when I came home to the UK. <laughs> I, I didn't, but I hadn't spoken English for 10 years, and so I didn't know how to. So, so you'd go to a bank and not know which language you were supposed to speak because you'd go to an official situation and the wrong language comes out because you're used to being, it being in Spanish. But yes, that, the black and tawny seed eater is a highly threatened member, a very large genus, Sporophylla, that, of which there are many... There are lots of generalist species, so one bred in our garden in Bolivia, the, um, the bicoloured seed eater. And so that just likes scrubby grassland, rough scrub, and it, it'll feed on any grass seeds, basically, green still on the plant. Um, but the black and tawny seed eater is very fussy and only lives in these seasonally flooded termite man savannas on the, on the Rio Etenes. Not quite only, but that's its heartland. And is that sort of restricted diet why it's so...? I don't think anybody really, even to this day, has discovered. But within that little group of seed eaters, there are the, the small, very savannah specialist seed eaters. There are lots and lots of different species. And each one nests only in a very small area of South America. And so each grassland area has its own little Sporophyllus seed eater that will only live in that area. Now in winter, they often mix and you get these gorgeous mixed flocks of all these different birds together, but they go back to their specific areas to breed. And the black and tawny uh, Sporophyllus nigrarufa is one of the really rare ones and just lovely. But I bet you got to see some slightly more impressive birds than the black and tawny seed eater when you were in Bolivia. I did, not just not just birds. Um, they, those savannas are just just amazing. Um, Toco toucan is a really common bird there, which is the, the biggest of all the toucans with the bright orange bill. They're really common. Blue and yellow macaw is very, very common there. Chestnut-fronted uh, macaw are also really common. Red-bellied macaw, which is really specific to a particular type of palm called moriche. And there's, there's a palm swamp of these uh, palms on the edge of this savanna. And so the red-bellied macaws lived in there. But, but also walking along the, uh, through, wading through these flooded savannas, I saw my first maned wolves and giant anteaters and uh, giant otters and in the river where I lived, pink river dolphins and nearby jaguars and pumas and all sorts of amazing, amazing life-changing creatures. 
fantastic. I, I have been to Bolivia briefly in Peru a couple of times in Ecuador when I when I traveled a little bit um, when I was younger. And frustratingly for me now, it's it's a huge regret in the sense that, you know, I, I had a I did that thing that, that a lot of people do where they love birds as a kid and then they discover other things as they get older and they step away from that and they get distracted. And then you you start to come back to it. And I think I hadn't quite come back to it, but I think that trip possibly steered me towards coming back to it and reignited that passion that was there. You know, I do remember seeing Andean condors and and flamingos and things that I could not recognize, but looked awesome. And and I know that, you know, I've probably seen some amazing birds without actually remembering them or taking notice of them at the time, which, like I say, it'll always be a regret. And maybe one day I'll go back and feel guilty about being on that plane, knowing that you <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> well, if you ever need advice on where to go birding in Bolivia, <laughs> I have spent it, or indeed Peru, Ecuador, has been privileged to spend a huge amount of time in all of them. Uh, you're making me think of condors, which really, never saw them over my home because I live just that little bit too far into the lowlands, but the, you only had to go a tiny bit up into the hills before you started seeing the condor, which in Bolivia is known as maiku. maiku. Well, that's, yeah, I've got happy memories of that. But, but no other birds, just that one. Um, so tell us about your third choice. Third number three. three, three. Third one is the plum-headed parakeet. I have also had the enormous privilege of spending about four years in India, not all in one go, but several long, long stints in India. And it's utterly, utterly wonderful. Just on every level, the food is completely amazing. Um, the people are warm and funny and friendly, and there are a million meanings to everything. Nothing ever means what it means on the surface. It's bewildering and wonderful. And the more you scratch the surface, the more you realize how little you understand. Um, but I've spent a huge amount of time with the wildlife and I love the parrots. I love all of the parrots. I love rose-ringed parakeets, which in the UK we're supposed to hate and we're supposed to be very anti them. We're supposed to be very, oh, it's not native, so it's an evil, bad bird and it needs to be punished. But I love them. But the plum-headed parakeet is it's svelte by comparison and it's it's always found in slightly wilder places than um than the rose ring parakeet so so in in delhi for example rose ring parakeet is just massively common every telegraph pole has got a pear nesting in the top every crack in an old building every bit where they haven't put a beam in a there's a hole in the edge of a building there's a pair of rose ring parakeets nesting but the plum headed is more a bird of wild places and i first got to know it in the northwest of India where it's in the dry forest where the tigers live in, in the area of Lampenburg although it's also it's common where basically wherever there are tigers it's common in all the central Indian tiger parks where I spent a lot of time and it's just it's exquisitely beautiful the male has this gorgeous rich plum colored head and the female has a, a gentler softer more grayish face and they've got this unbelievably long tail with a white tip that quivers as they fly and then they fly over and they say quick they have this really sharp, bright little call, and they're just, oh, they, they bring a smile to my heart. They're just amazing birds. And, and because they make me remember all of the wonderful, wonderful things I've seen alongside them. That's always a good reason, isn't it, to have a, a, a favourite bird. It's something that connects you to a place or a time or a memory. I was going to ask you about how you felt about the parakeets in the UK, but you've answered that because 
they're really unpopular and they're, they're starting to take a toehold up here in the northeast now and in my parents back garden there's regularly 20 or so and i think it's it's it seems to be their back garden is the biggest colony in the northeast from from what i can gather they love them to start with and they're starting to now realize that they're pushing out the the smaller birds a little bit so they're getting a bit a bit concerned about that but yeah the plum headed parakeet is is a beauty although it does look slightly like a furious ring-necked parakeet you know in that <laughs> sort of way. <laughs> apoplectic with rage <laughs> this yes i suppose it does it's got a very um livid face but but actually when you see them for, for real they've, they there's this gorgeous almost bluish cast and a magenta feel to it and there's you could never think they were angry when you saw them in real life they're so delicate they're yeah. half the size of a rose ring parakeet but with yeah. a tail that's one and a half times the length that quivers and oh they're just, they're just and they sound so sweet as well okay so let's let's head on to number four which again is another far-flung bird bird number four it is indeed it's a madagascar teal now ducks and i will brook no argument ducks are by far the best birds in the world as everyone knows there is no there is no arguing over this i just adore them they're happy little faces and they're webbed feet and they're always in beautiful places and they're just amazing and i've had the great privilege of seeing the great majority of the world's ducks around the world and the madagascar teal is just this delicate pretty little thing it's it's so unassuming in color it's this beigey, slightly greyish duck, a bit like a, a grey teal from, from the Pacific, for example, but smaller and more delicate and with more of a buff thing going on. But it's got this beautiful nacreous bill. It's just just beautiful, pinky, bluish grey colour. And it's, and it's really quite a rare bird. It's not as threatened as was thought. A lot more of them have been found now that they know what habitat they live in. But they're only found in the coastal wetlands of the west of Madagascar in mangroves essentially although they move into salt pans as well and they're just they're special if you're seeing Madagascar teal you're in the west and if you're in the west the lemurs are just mind-blowingly amazing and so if you get if you're seeing a Madagascar teal then you're having a good day is pretty much <laughs> the answer. Fantastic. I had a little look up and I saw that there was only 1500 left in the wild but you're saying that there's actually more that have been discovered have they found new areas or? They've been raised in terms of their level of threat. It was thought maybe 20, 30 years ago that they were extremely rare because nobody knew where they were. And since then, particularly Durrell has been working. So the Jersey Wildlife, uh, well, Jersey Zoo, Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust, that it used to be called, it's now called Durrell. They've been working a tremendous amount in Western Madagascar. And of course, they work with the Madagascar Potchard, which is found slightly further north in the west of Madagascar. And through their work and the work of Madagascan academics and uh, ornithologists and so on, they've, they've found that really these, this habitat of the mangroves in the West is where they live. So now they know where to look for them. They've found that they're a lot safer than was previously thought. Good. Well, I'm glad. And, and like you say, it's, I, I love a duck. Possibly not as much as you love a duck. I, I, I do love a floater. And you're right. I've, I've had a look at these guys online and they're unassuming stunning little birds and that 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 bill is something it is it is they're just they're just lovely we're on to bird number five and your final choice and this is something that's a little bit more familiar to me but tell us about bird number five bird number five 
bird number five is hobby or technically if we're being geeky about this Eurasian hobby mm -hmm. because the world has a number of other hobbies all of which are very sexy things but our own hobby is really the, the sexiest of the set they're just so sharp and so plucky and so beautiful and when you see your first hobby in the springtime it's that first flush of migrant birds and the weather's just beginning to warm up and the first dragonflies are emerging and you either see a hobby slam across the sky or you hear that shrieking call and you just think yes here's spring and then I'm lucky that they breed I, I live just next to a river and they breed in the river valley just near me and I don't see them very much in the summer when they're breeding they're quite secretive but then late in the summer and into the autumn they're hunting there's a big there's a pond outside the front of my house and we get 60 or so swallows um, gathering on the wires just outside my house and when they're all gathered then I get hobbies going over my house every day and it's just they're thrilling they're just they're just thrilling I'm so jealous. I'm lucky where I live in Northumberland. We do get some great birds up here. I'm reasonably near the coast, so we can see some fantastic migrants and, you know, birds that we have up here. But hobbies are, are rare up here. You know, they're, I know they're not a common bird down where you are, but you've got them in your garden, man. You know? And for me, I'm lucky if I catch a glimpse. Yeah, I'm just so jealous that you can just sit and watch them plucking swifts or swallows in your back garden. It's, it's just ridiculous. And it is a real privilege. It really is. I have I have marsh harriers nesting right behind me as well. So in usually late March, April time on a bright day, they go up and the male is having a good old shout because there's a little reed bed on the river right behind my house. Fantastic. Very, very lucky man. The thing I, I, I love hobbies as well. And even though I don't see them very often, but, you know, I love a bird with a moustache. And this podcast, as you know, is named after the peregrine. But these guys, they have the moustache, they have the cool looks of the peregrine, but they're, you know, they've, they've got red trousers. I, 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 you, can't, you can't not admire a, a bird that's that much of a swashbuckler. No, they're, they're just, they're, they're beautiful to look at, but they're also, they've got that pared down, really sharp, piratical nature. They're just, they're just incredible creatures. One of very few birds in the sky that doesn't care that it's not a peregrine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, it could hold its own, I'm sure. I think it would be remiss to talking about the hobby, not to mention the the story that I think a lot of birders love about hobbies. And maybe people listening to this podcast might not know, but it is the tabletop football story. And so it goes like this, that a gentleman called Peter Adolf created the tabletop football game Subutio in 1945. And he tried to patent the name that he originally wanted to call the game, which was The Hobby because it was a hobby to play this game and his favorite bird was the hobby. But he wasn't able to get that patented, so he named it after the Latin name of the hobby, which is Falco Subutio, so he called Subutio Subutio. But what's always interested me about Subutio, it means small buzzard or smaller than a buzzard, doesn't it? Less than a buzzard. Less than what, a buzzard. What's that all about? <laughs> You know, I, I mean, it, it's stupid when you think about it because, you know, it's it's smaller in size than a buzzard, but it's also smaller in size than a, I don't know, a grey heron. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it's bonkers. And, and there's really nothing, nothing to compare the two. I mean, I love a buzzard, but a yeah. buzzard, the buzzards around here spend their time eating roadkill pheasants off the road and eating worms in the fields and occasionally the odd baby bunny. They're not. <laughs> 
They're not swanging through the sky, wreaking death on swifts and swallows and plucking the wings off migrant hawkers as they fly. Yeah. And show me your skills, buzzard. Go on. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I, I think as much as I love that that story about Subutio, the game, I think the name, the Latin name, undersells the hobby, which we, we both agree is an awesome bird. Now, Nick, I've been told on Twitter many times by people that all birds are equal and there is no such thing as a best bird. But these people, as you will agree from what you've said earlier, are clearly deluded. Nobody's ever squealed in delight at the, the sight of a pheasant bumbling around the corner of a field or rub their thighs in pleasure watching a wood pigeon, even if it does its signature move of that wing clap thing they can do. You know, clearly some birds are just simply better than others. And it comes down to this. The whole point of this podcast is you've got to choose one of your five birds and pitch it against my peregrine. And then I will decide which is the champion. So... Come on then, let's go for it. Which one are you going to go for? And I'm guessing you're not going to pick the black and tawny seed eater. I'm, I'm not. As, as cute and charismatic as it is. No, my, my absolute favouritist bird in the entire universe is the hobby. They, they spell, I'm a creature of summertime. I'm a creature of springtime and summertime. That's my favourite time of year. And for me, the hobby really is more than cuckoos and more, more than all the warblers coming back and the nightingales and the nightjars. The hobby represents that. And they're just so, they're such daredevils. They're such, that if, if you take your, your lumpish clods of peregrines and you, and you gave them to an extremely skilled whittler, who pared it down with his penknife to becoming this death-defying thing of, of sheer awesome brilliance that, as I say, can, can pluck dragonflies on the wing and has red trunks. I mean, seriously. You've made this really tough for me because that is an extremely strong argument. And I, I hate to admit it, but I, I don't think I can, even though the peregrine's got the whole stoop fastest thing on the planet going on for it, you know... Catching swifts midair and wearing red pants is probably going to win every time. So, yeah, this week's winner is the Eurasian hobby. Hobbies everywhere are grateful. <laughs> well, Nick, it's been an absolute treat finally meeting you and, and uh, having this chat. And hopefully, once all of this lockdown nonsense ends, we'll be able to finally uh, meet face to face. I very much hope so. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure talking. Thanks very much, Nick. So that's almost all for this week. Do look up Nick's forthcoming Cly Calling online events on the Norfolk Wildlife Trust website. On the 18th of February, he is talking with the wonderful nature writer and novelist Melissa Harrison. And in March, he chats to field ornithologist and raptor reintroduction legend Roy Dennis. You might also like to look up NWT's Thompson Common Land Purchase Appeal a project to fund the purchase of land around Thompson Common in the Brex to restore this ancient grassland with its Ice Age pools known as Pingos to reconnect the site with nearby arable and woodland. But that's all for now. Please drop in again next week when my special guest will be wildlife TV producer Laura Howard. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>